So what are some other ways you can kind of protect the integrity of the design? So well, the number one thing I learned to do uh, like 10 years in my career mm. was it was very similar. This is why filmmaking was actually a really good start mm. because design is that you're still telling a story, right? The medium is very different. But there's still a theme, there's an arc, there are characters mm -hmm. that we call typography and color and layout, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, there is a, usually a three or a five act structure and there's a, a denouement, there's an, like, an unraveling where you know, everything comes together. Mm -hmm. Now we're used to seeing these things in temporal, you know, time-based stories, but this is an internal dialogue that every conscious being does. So in a way, design is literally just a human response to the human need to categorize, identify, and define things. Mm -hmm. right? Every conscious being it goes through those three steps when they encounter anything. Yeah. Categorize it, identify it, and then give it a name, right? Okay. And then usually you'll put a pejorative on it. Is that good mm -hmm. or bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. My process is going unraveling that. When I realized that, I was like, well, okay, just like a story. Like if you're Dostoevsky and you have this like thousand page crazy Russian novel with all these like characters, how do you keep track of all that? Are you some sort of super genius? And of course the answer is no, you can't. Mm -hmm. What you can do though is at any point in the story, look at one small, simple problem. It's like a fractal. Mm -hmm. One little simple aspect of it mm -hmm. and weigh that aspect against the theme of your novel. Mm -hmm. In my case, I call it the core emotional value of the design. And... Uh, you know, the famous examples, you know, one of my favorites, like Paul Rand and IBM. Uh, the core emotional value of IBM, and this is why they have the same logo since the 1940s, and it will never go out of style, is order from chaos. They've changed their business model. You know, they used to make things, now they're services. It, they may go make candy next year if there's, like, a need for non-chaos order candy. The point is... At any point, anyone at IBM, when they're making a design decision, at the simplest level, can come down to some sort of granularity and say, which design decision, which color am I choosing from? In some way, can I objectively say, this speaks to order from chaos. Welcome to my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about their meditation mindfulness practices and how they incorporate stress into their life and how they work with stress in order to create daily. Uh, today I interviewed uh, Damien Rosenblatt. He just uh, finished the uh, design and branding work for the San Francisco MTA. Um, he had amazing wisdom to share, particularly about finding the emotional core value of a brand. Um, and this can work for an individual too, is basically why are you here? What is your purpose on this earth as a human being? What is it that drives you emotionally uh, to create what you create? Uh, and, and everything else will flow from that. So find that one thing that drives you, and then everything else will come from that. I really think you'll find this episode to be amazing. Um, if you do, please give us some reviews on iTunes. Uh, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, you can find us at Crazy Wisdom. Thanks, and have a great day. Um, welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Damien, uh, can you introduce yourself? Oh, it's Damien, but it's okay. It takes people like six weeks. Okay, to, yeah, Damien. You know, uh -huh. hip, hippie parent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, what, I'm sorry, what was it? <laughs> uh, so just, uh, you know, introduce yourself. And, yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Hello, I'm Damien. I'm a, a graphic designer specializes in branding and corporate identity. I have been uh, doing that uh, for my own business for uh, almost 20 years now, mm. um, which I, I kind of like, how the hell did that happen? Because I certainly didn't start out that way. Uh, and um, yeah, I, uh, uh, I just sort of go around solving design problems and uh, hopefully make the world a little better. Mm.
And we were just talking about how, what your view on stress is in terms of the creative process. And you said that stress is actually something you avoid and you, the creative process is the thing that you love doing. Yeah, I wouldn't say avoid because sometimes when you solve a design problem, you are like, I like to say, like if you're properly solving a problem, unless like the solution is I want to cause stress, right? Now that, and that's could be very valid for a certain design, um, right? But generally when you're solving a problem, you are removing some sort of stress. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that aspect of it on the user end, but also just from my perspective, I'm the type of person where like stress doesn't push my creativity. It's the opposite. It's like uh, when I'm creative, it it de-stresses me Mm -hmm. uh, because I get to think the way my mind wants to think, but I've had, you know, society trains you don't think that way. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's kind of nice when I'm designing because I finally get to sort of exist in my safe space, if Mm -hmm. if that's a fair fair way to put it. Absolutely. And then when did you figure this out? Well, um, like my, I'm wired a little differently. You know, there are spectrums of this, I guess you could call. But like, I've always had an issue, uh, especially when I was much younger, before the benefit of you know age and, and learning how to cope with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like not being able to turn off patterns, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd constantly uh, be in an environment which was natural or you know chaotic, if you want, and, and try to see patterns in it. Um, mm-hmm. It obsessed me mm-hmm. to. to my detriment Mm -hmm. um and you know it's an issue that i actually i think that's why i I figured out how do i find a place in the society where i can make a living Uh (laughs) by using that power Uh Uh and that that's i think how i fell into it and found like wow what you know all through high school and you know partially through college where i was like basically society was like turn that off it it freaks people out you're never gonna make money doing it yeah yeah, right and i realized like actually this might be the key Uh, interesting that's so cool uh, was there like a particular moment where, you, or was it like kind of just like a? It, uh, uh, it, yeah, I think it was just like evolutionary pro- or programming prerogative, if mm-hmm. you will. It's mm-hmm. like, it, like short of like not existing anymore, I would sort of have to go in that direction. Uh-huh. So in a weird way, that was like also you know one of my design philosophies is like water flows downhill, find the path of least resistance. That's usually a really easy, you know, not an easy, but it's like a, a great way to make a user feel like you're answering other questions or responding to their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I just followed that path too, because mm-hmm. it, I mean, I guess if there was a moment and it did have to do with stress, mm-hmm. I think actually, mm-hmm. um, is I started off as a filmmaker um, and like a, a, a computer, like a, a 2D computer graphics animator. Uh-huh. Back then they called it graphic designers with, uh, interface or animation knowledge because this was like two years later they came up with the term oh, multimedia uh-huh. which of course is now outdated but uh-huh. I, I discovered it when I realized like I was miserable trying to tell stories visually uh, with film and, and, and you must understand it's like maybe the timing was off this was a like the, the the early nineties, uh, like late eighties, and there was no desktop video publishing uh, mm. or iPhone, but you know, for that matter, uh, to to get what was in your head on a screen took like fifty people. The stress was like that made me miserable because I had to rely on fifty other people and money, which I didn't have at the time. And it was like eighteen, nineteen, wow. and at the time, uh, you know, design on the computer where you didn't suddenly need ten other people, you mm. know, was coming into vogue Mm. and that's sort of how I began to fall into it it was really a response to it's too stressful Mm -hmm. for me to get my ideas out of my head onto that screen with 50 other people as a filter Mm. and I'm not good with you know communicating on that level of people generally like that's a weakness so I can either figure out how to push past that or Or use it as a strength Uh uh-huh yep 
And as technology has evolved, has it become way easier to remove those stressors towards creativity? <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh my god. Yeah. yeah, it's like beyond a force multiplier. It's uh-huh. like a magic wand. Uh-huh. Um, when I first started my business, um, this was like right at the point where people were just putting credit card numbers into web browsers. Yes. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, told me, your business model will never work. A client will never pay you unless they not only, A, meet you in person, mm. but B, like, you have an office with a conference room and a receptionist. And mm. you know, they won't give you money because they won't trust you. I'm like, I, I don't think that's true. I think there's a market because like, people are comfortable now just, like, buying underwear online. Yeah. It's not going to take much longer for them to just, like, they're not going to think about yeah, I haven't met this person. Uh-huh. Well, of course you haven't. It's more convenient. It's cheaper. Yeah. It's less overhead. Uh, and that's uh, It's totally random, but it's really interesting because in India, I was I lived in India for a long time and I was building a startup uh, focused on the Indian market. And, uh, and in India, they, uh, they still have that problem, uh, but now they actually do cash on delivery. So if you order something from Amazon, they'll yeah. show up at the door and you actually pay cash. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so that makes Germany not look like a cash based economy. That's incredible. Um, uh. Which city were you in? Uh, I was in Chandigarh, uh, northern India. Yeah, do you know it? I know of it. I'm more familiar with Bangalore, though. Oh, okay, because yeah. it's like you know, you know the, uh-huh. the tech craziness and this weird connection through a former boss who was a devotee of Sai Baba before that whole craziness happened. Oh, so, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And do you have a meditation practice? Or you... uh, yes, uh-huh. but it's usually it's like once a week. Uh-huh. I will like put aside an hour or two to design something. That is totally, um, it's not for a client. It's Uh not even for something that may exist. Uh It's usually working through a visual thing that has bothered me for years. I'm like, I haven't figured that out yet. Uh That is like, I just don't, I, you know, sometimes I realize like, oh, I've I've been doing this for five hours. I didn't realize that time passed. Uh, And And so it's not formal. You don't sit down. No, 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 no. You just kind of start creating. Yeah. Yeah. Because I find when I... Dude, because you know my uh, you know, my mother is a yoga and tai chi teacher, oh, so yeah, I was exposed to this, and I did meditate uh, in my twenties. You know, every day, th- you know, sit cross-legged, in uh-huh. and out, breathe through the diaphragm. My voice teacher, I was like, breathe through the anus. Um, <laughs> just, well, thank you, um, thanks, Fran. Uh, the problem with that for me, and I, I only speak for myself, obviously, uh, when. I understand the point, like, quiet your mind, allow, you know, you see your thoughts in front of you and you can look at them objectively. That's actually, like, my problem with anything is that's almost always how I'm presently aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost too much so. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm so objective, like, and laying things out there, like, dispassionately. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's actually, like, analytically freaky, I mm-hmm. think, sometimes to others. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm in my meditation where I'm, like, you know... Creating like yeah. thinking something through and it soothes me. Um, it's the opposite of my mind being quieted. And I have the luxury of not being objective. I can be subjective. And I must stress, like, the, you know, th- this was one of the first lessons I learned getting in design. And this was also a stressor. Because, um, you know, at first I thought it was all, oh, this is art. I, I'm, I'm cool. I know what I'm doing. I'm a cool aesthetic. And uh, you will pay me money and trust me. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I realized, like, that's, that's the glory of art. You can do whatever you want. You can take a shit in the corner and point at it and say, that is art. And no one can disagree with you. Don't, no one has to like it. Yeah. It doesn't have to have a point. It doesn't have to solve a problem. Mm. And so my meditation is when I get to do that. There's no client. There's no audience. I'm the audience. Mm. Like, I get to do that. Um, mm. And I always find that very... Uh, 
So is there a, is there a stress while you are creating for a client of fitting your art into a no place? no 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 because art has no place in that um, okay. in my uh, in my yeah, opinion yeah. Um, it can like it, so let me you know with the caveat that I'm not putting down art I'm saying it's like art and design are very two very different masters in mm. a sense mm -hmm. um, you could say there is art and design and if you want to get really technical it could be like yeah if I'm on a branding project and the core emotional value of this brand literally has to do with like the prerogatives of art mm. we may hire artists as part of the branding to do that but mm. I myself would never say I am an artist I'm not mm -hmm. definitely not mm -hmm. um, no no no, no. Mm. Uh, so yeah so like that's I, you, you are a designer but your meditation is art basically yeah I guess that's a good way to put it and no um, that never stresses me out I actually get a lot of pleasure out of that I like being able to defend my designs to keep the integrity of the designs as the like endless committees and focus groups get thrown at them mm. because I can constantly parse through all that subtext and say Look, the problem we're solving is this in this environment or context. Mm. We have to listen to everything, all the feedback we get through the lens of that context and environment. Mm. Or it's like the whole, you know, Henry Ford, you know, it's like if Henry Ford listened to his customers, he would have built a faster horse. Yeah. Um, they don't always know what they want. You have to listen to what they need. Uh, uh, and was this, uh, so you recently did a redesign for the San Francisco Muni uh, project, correct? SFMTA, yeah. There's okay, a SF Muni, it, I'm making a big deal of this in the brand guide. It's like okay. they are two different entities, uh -huh. but they are related. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the MTA, and how was that process? You just mentioned a lot of kind of subcommittees and all these different things. Was there a lot of that going on? Well, okay. So first I have to say, when I'm speaking uh, especially about work for the SFMTA, this is my opinion only, okay. and it does yep. not reflect the opinion of the client or uh -huh. any other, right? It's a yep. standard caveat, yep. listeners, if you're listening. <laughs> Um, okay, so first of all, I got a premise with like one of the most shocking and amazing things I learned on this like two, actually no, three year project mm. <laughs> is everything that people are frustrated about bureaucracy or government, they need to take the chill pill mm. because they cost it. Mm. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. What I mean by that is, yes, all these things happen. Endless subcommittees. Some of the, the most bizarre decision trees you can possibly <laughs> imagine. Like, uh, entertaining to the point. Uh, yeah. You know, it was like entertaining to see this logic. Uh, yeah. But it's all for an incredibly good reason. Everyone there is day in, day out, t like, terrified of the voters. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Okay. The reason they go through all these, like, a simple decision, like, I'm telling you, Objectively, according to the laws of Newtonian physics, mm. this is the only color blue mm. that we can use because of all, like, it has to be good if you're colorblind, it has to work on concrete or on screen or on a piece of paper or a bad piece of paper, and this is the only color blue that will you can reliably reproduce. It has, that's it. And we still have to go through months uh. of feedback. Now, why? Because they are terrified when it comes out, vote, you know, the angry voter will write a letter and start a story like, why did you do that? It doesn't matter. They have to be able to have data to say, we're not autocrats, we're not dictators, and say, you know, because designers are dictators. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It's, design is not democratic. Yeah. It's, like, not from the bottom up. It, you can't design something by committee. Correct. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, there's also, and this is this is why you never want someone like me to ever be a political <laughs> because... You know, we use the excuse that all dictators do, and luckily, I think in design, it's like, hopefully it's not affecting your freedoms in your life, but it really does come down to, by eliminating your choice, you suddenly have the freedom 
to spend your time on many other more important choices. I don't want you wasting your time redesigning this flyer every time. I'm taking away your choices in terms of how you can design this flyer so that you can actually do your real job. So when, when you know, you bring up this issue of, like, did that cause stress? Like, actually, no. When, when I get into situations with, like, the, you know, the interesting clients where there are, you know, bizarre circumstances, I almost always find, like, the, the, the comedy in that. Um, mm-hmm. And then I step back and I'm like, but what is the reason for this? And, you know, the designer in me realized, like, hell, the, the reason in this is it's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Bureaucracies like this exist to prove that there is not a dictator here. Even if there is a dictator, mm-hmm. we are, like, Check forcing through all opinions, all yeah. possibilities, yeah. so that we can come back to you and say, look, we, we didn't just shove this down your throat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That was amazing. And, you know, working for most of my clients, obviously, you know, a lot of tech, a lot of startups. So they're, you know, supposed to be very nimble yeah. and, like, can turn on time. And they can. But I must say that, like, out of all the clients I've had, this is almost, you know, it's above 200 now. I'd say 98% of them have been inherently dysfunctional. Uh. Like most companies don't actually spend most of their time creating a product to sell. Mm-hmm. That's about 20% of their time. Mm-hmm. The other 80% are office politics mm-hmm. and like wasting time in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, getting ahead, stabbing people in the back, yeah. trying to get a better job. Uh, now, I'm not, again, like that 20% where they're at, that's very powerful. Yeah. Um, but it's very rare where I've seen any organization, private or public, that's like nirvana. Yeah. There's always yeah. weird dysfunction. Mm-hmm. The question is, how much does it cost and who has to pay for it? And I found actually, interestingly, in the bureaucracy, like, they're not wasting money. These are, like, the most frugal, cheap people I've ever seen, ever. Because, yeah, they are terrified yeah. of the voters. Yeah. Um, mm. And the difference is, like, at a, I've noticed, like in private companies, they're backstabbing each other for, like, I want your job. At the SFMTA, I notice like, they're not backstabbing, but that sort of posturing exists to, I am trying to listen to the voters more carefully than you. So, again, it's, like, a different... <laughs> It's not a profit motivation. It's sort of like a. And do you yeah. think do you think that's that's different here in San Francisco <gasps> where the voters are more kind oh. of like? Oh my god! Yes, yes. yes. Okay. Oh yes, uh-huh. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think as a designer, that was you know uh, you know you talked about stress. Was that stressful? Yeah. Um, overall, no. But the funny thing is, like, I've never. I've never had an experience like this. This was like the first time I, you know, ever. I've worked with bureaucracies before, but never for so long and never on this level. Mm. And I, I, I like mentally prepared myself for like you're gonna probably get really frustrated. Mm. But again, I just kept reminding myself in those situations, like protect the integrity of the design. Mm. That let everything else slide off your back. They can attack me. They can hate me. And I, you know. I knew it's like, I'm going to make a lot of enemies there and I have to be okay with it because I'm going to be the stick in the mud. Mm -hmm. I'm always going to be the one, like, I understand that, but in three months, like, you will... Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, you're probably listening and I'm gesturing. You have no idea. But (laughs) it's just a way of saying, it's like, that that was initially partially stressful, but again, as I said earlier, it was more about the humor. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was more about the process and it was just staying grounded and like protect mm-hmm. the integrity of this design which in the case of the SFMTA was we are not trying to like glamour we're not trying to say this is the slick modern fast no this is basically it's ubiquitous it's it's everywhere mm. and it's all connected somehow and whether you uh, live on Knob Hill and uh, you're parking your car or uh, you live where I live and you're getting on the Muni or you walk or you bike you are not fighting against each other. You're all actually connected somehow. Mm. 
You know, if I miss park, I screw up your bus commute. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you hold up the bus by waiting the door, you screw up the cars behind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a biker and you don't like cross properly, you're, it's connected. Mm-hmm. And there was no way to do that. So whenever there was like the craziness or the stress, I just reminded myself, no, no, no. I understand where that's coming from, yeah. but right now there's a much bigger picture that we're trying to solve, and yeah. you know that is this uh, connection between these things. A lot of things that have been coming up as I've been interviewing people is the importance of mindset interventions or frameworks or kind of like how you view what's about to happen as mm-hmm. the most important thing. And like you just said, I think that's important. Yeah. Well, like in terms of like I expect, like you have these false expectations and you cling to them? Or? Uh, well, no, actually like you, you so for example, uh, the last one of the last persons I interviewed talked about the upside of stress and how like uh, there were, uh, and then he suggested a book called The Upside of Stress. And, and uh, in the book, it says that maids, um, people who are cleaning throughout the day are spending about six hours in exercise. But they don't view it as exercise. Yeah. And so they're like, oh, I have to do more exercise afterwards. But then they did, they did, they did a mindset intervention where they taught the maids, oh, okay, uh, uh, if you view what you're doing as exercise, you will then, you'll, you are doing exercise. So view it as it. And then all of a sudden they got healthier. Um, they had like. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that is, I mean, that's absolutely the most creative way that you can reconfigure your time is like the jujitsu of you take this negative, this opposing thing, mm-hmm. and you don't morph it you don't change it you don't change the process you literally you just look at it from another point of view yeah Mm. absolutely and it sounds like you have a lot of those things essentially viewing knowing that you're going into this this situation and there's going to be a lot of pushback there's going to be a lot of bureaucracy but then just kind of like okay that's all of that's fine like but i'm just going to work with it not only fine but like that'll be part of the fun yeah like how do i like like the i think the most creative thing about this project was like well put it this way if you look at the very first proposed designs we, we you know brought to the table two and a half years ago, mm. like when we did our initial research, we were like, objectively, this is the problem. Now let's look at it in context, like how many options do you actually have for a solution to this? And we came up with a design based on that. And um, it is unbelievable mm. to see three years later, the final version is almost exactly the same. Mm. It survived everything. Mm. And so... A, staying on track in terms of that frame of mind, I think definitely helped that, mm-hmm. like get it through all those committees. But more to the point, preparing myself for that was also like, when you get like this weird feedback or this frustration, no, no, this is just a chance to argue your point, to prove uh, that there was a the right decision. By the way, if you learn otherwise, mm-hmm. that's even better. Cause like, oh wow, I've learned something I didn't know. And that's actually really good because it's gonna make me rethink this maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of it is really in situations like that, I would just beg people, like, turn this into comedy. Think Kafka. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it can be, like, the most uh, hysterically wonderful thing if you just step back for a moment and realize, like, I am actually hearing people use language like this. Mm. Um, and it's marvelous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't get frustrated by that at all. I find it very amusing. And that's another great point. You mentioned that a lot of, in meditation practice, we talk a lot about and we think a lot about is essentially stepping back a little bit. And so you don't react, you don't get stuck in the emotion or the, the, the framework or whatever. Yeah, and you absolutely. Like step back and you like view it. Yeah, very important. Yeah. It's, you know, it, I get it's a contradiction. Again, this is where like I, I, I always, you know, when I taught design, I always told my student designers like, this is not art. Mm. You can't take it personally. Mm. You can't let your emotions mm. get you, like, you'll have a nervous breakdown if you do in your designer. And art is personal. Yes. Yeah. And again, that's why I'm like, I'm not, like, I'm almost jealous of artists in a sense. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, they get to, like, 
this I am pouring out my soul here. Um, now, do I, am I saying I never get a chance to do that? Uh, well, that's what my meditation time mm. is for. Mm. Have I ever been paid to do that? Very few times, because mm. I don't actually think I'm a very good artist. Because mm. um, I'm kind of, well, you could cruelly say that I'm soulless, but I like to say I'm, I am overly objective in my real life all the time. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of like a mirror image almost in a mm -hmm. weird way, where it's like my meditation time mm -hmm. is my time to be passionate and uh, uh, subjective mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. you know nonsensical. Mm -hmm. But then my professional life is all about, no, mm -hmm. this is all meditation. This is mm -hmm. all putting things in front of me and dispassionately saying, oh, I'm sorry, you may like that color, but that's just not appropriate for this context. No offense. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what are some other ways you can kind of protect the integrity of the design? So well, the number one thing I learned to do uh, like 10 years in my career mm. was it was very similar. This is why filmmaking was actually a really good start mm. because design is that you're still telling a story, right? The medium is very different, but there's still a theme. There's an arc. There are characters mm. that we call typography and color and layout, mm. right? Um, uh, there is uh, usually a three or a five act structure, and there's a, a denouement. There's an, like, an unraveling where you know, everything comes together. Mm. Now we're used to seeing these things in temporal, you know, time based stories, but this is an internal dialogue that every conscious being does. So, in a way, design is literally just a human response to the human need to categorize, identify, and define things. Mm -hmm. right? Every conscious being it goes through those three steps when they encounter anything: yeah. categorize it, identify it, and then give it a name. Right, okay. and then usually you'll put a pejorative on it: is that good mm -hmm. or bad? Right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. My process is going unraveling that. When I realized that, I was like, well, okay, just like a story. Like if you're Dostoevsky and you have this like thousand page crazy Russian novel with all these like characters, how do you keep track of all that? Are you some sort of super genius? And of course the answer is no, you can't. Mm -hmm. What you can do though is at any point in the story look at one small simple problem. It's like a fractal, mm -hmm. one little simple aspect of it, mm -hmm. and weigh that aspect against the theme of your novel. Mm -hmm. In my case, I call it the core emotional value of the design and. Uh, you know, the famous examples, you know, one of my favorites, like Paul Rand and IBM. Uh, the core emotional value of IBM, and this is why they have the same logo since the 1940s, and mm -hmm. it will never go out of style, mm -hmm. is order from chaos. Mm -hmm. They've changed their business model. You know, they used to make things, now they're services. It, they may go make candy next year if there's, like, a need for non-chaos order candy. Mm -hmm. The point is... At any point, anyone at IBM, when they're making a design decision, at the simplest level, can come down to some sort of granularity and say, which design decision, which color am I choosing from? In some way, can I objectively say, this speaks to order from chaos? Mm -hmm. When you start to apply that sort of like, uh, you know, like that theme to many, 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 many smaller decisions, mm -hmm. what happens is, and you don't have to understand how, I mean, you can, but the point is, is when you step back, mm -hmm. as long as you're really dogged about, no, we have to stay true to the core emotional value, we have to remember the context that this is appearing in, we have to remember the tech, right? You step back and suddenly you're like, holy, how did I, how did I figure all this out? Mm -hmm. It all works. It's so complicated. Everything we do it just sort of fits in. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's like you're not some sort of super genius. Mm -hmm. You've just been like very dogged and methodical and, and breaking things down to smaller and smaller pieces until you understand them and applying that team to and that that is the number one way mm. um, that I've done that and that I've been able to I hate to say win arguments with clients because it's not but create a dialogue with clients because it's a very 
it, it's horrible for clients, especially when they've never dealt with a designer before, but they have dealt with an interior decorator <laughs> or an artist, yeah. where the client's like, I'm giving you a lot of money. I like pink horses. Make a pink horse logo. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, but you make semiconductors. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's like, I don't care. That's what I like. It, it, to me, again, part of the fun of my job is how do you get you know that person away from that? Um, you know, to mm-hmm. I, I, you may actually pay me to make something that you hate. Mm-hmm. That I also I often create things, and I'm like, this is not. I don't like this. I do not like this aesthetic. But, but the audience is going to eat this up because uh, that's what they need. I don't need this. They do. Yeah. It's my job to engineer that. Um, so having that core emotional value is always like if the client says, I like pink ponies. I'm, so, it, you know, you don't have to be snarky. You can, you, you can basically, well, I can't be snarky. But, <laughs> uh, it shouldn't be, but I, you know, I can respond in that case. I'll, I'll consider a pink pony for your semiconductor company, yeah. but you need to explain to me how in the context of your market, in terms of what your customers need from you, for which we've discovered, by the way, by talking to them, uh, has to do with things that have to do with reliability, inexpensiveness, standardization. Hmm. None of those things objectively have anything to do with pink ponies. In fact, quite the opposite. Interesting. Right? Yeah. So unless you can justify, like, what am I missing here? Hmm. What am I missing that your customers would see a pink pony and think, that's what I need. Hmm. That somehow represents what I need. Yeah. Uh, that's a discussion that a designer more often can, uh, you know, prevail on than saying, "That's ugly," or "That is silly," or "You have to trust me. That's not going to work." That's art. Mm-hmm. You that's aesthetics. No client's aesthetics are wrong. No one's aesthetics are wrong because, come on, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. We must. We have to transcend that. Mm-hmm. Or we'll all be interior designers, like doing whatever the people who pay us tell us to do, without ever considering what the audience needs. Yeah. So, who has been your? Uh, you don't have to get specific either. But what is your fi- kind of favorite project, and which caused you the least stressed and kind of just flew flowed most organically? Or uh, do you actually like that friction uh, that comes with it? Or are those the most fun? I like both, but for different reasons. Uh-huh. Um, I like the ones that are as you say, frictionless, and I think that is because in those cases, I don't have to, either I've worked with the client before or the client has worked with other designers and there's no uh, sort of like, uh, you know, I call it an introduction period with the client where I'm basically, I'm learning their vocabulary and they're learning my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. It's like this wonderful back and forth. And by the way, I get a lot of repeat clients because they feel very invigorated Mm -hmm. by that process. Mm you've taught me so much about my business I didn't know. And I'm like, you taught me so much about design that I didn't know before. So that's part of the joy. Like, I've never, and I think it has a lot to do with branding design, like, I will design tampons and I will design, you know, computer chip identities. And people are like, how, these are, what's your niche? I'm like, no, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, It's solving a problem. So those could be the, you know, you could say that the friction ones are fun because I learn a lot more and it's the process, it's the uh, the logic of how do I get a client to, to come around on this, that that's the challenge. I find that immensely fun. Mm-hmm. On the frictionless ones, I find them they're fun because it's almost like I'm having the psychic dialogue with my client yeah, yeah. where we finish each other's sentences and really the only difference is they just go faster. Yeah. And so I wouldn't say I enjoy them more or less. I would say that they cost my clients less because mm-hmm. they happen much faster. Mm-hmm. It's not like six months more time, it's a month. So I think mm-hmm. an example of that would be uh, have these unbelievable clients in New York that yeah. I've been branding uh, they do Broadway shows I've been like branding and I've oh yeah, since I was eight years old I saw Cats uh-huh. you know, my parents took me to I was like oh my god I, was, I have to do this I finally got to and 
working with them is unbelievable because they really do like they understand exactly why they're hiring someone like yeah. me. Um, and uh, there, there's no need for a dialogue because we are already speaking the same language. And those things, uh, you know, normally with a client, for example, I will come and I will show them one direction. Mm. Right? It doesn't mean I'll you know, take it. I'm not like Paul Rams, like, take it or leave it, screw you. <laughs> but I will only come in and you know, here's one direction at a time. Yeah. If you don't like it, I'll, you know, here's another direction. Right? Um, with these clients, though, because we are speaking the same language, it's kind of fun to show them. It's like, here's the 15 things I've done. Because I know they're not going to start like, well, let me take that piece from number one and that piece from number seven. They'll look at it as I did. They're like, oh, yeah, we see why number one failed, but if it was in this context, it wouldn't. And so it's wonderful to sort of have this uh, uh, back and forth process, not just about the vocabulary, but the actual design itself. And so I like both types. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I just can't force one uh-huh. on, you know. On, can you, on the, can right. you know beforehand whether it's going to yeah. be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and the way you can is um, it's not fair to look at what they currently have because that could have been. Uh, 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 unfortunate uh, yeah. design choice, yeah. right? Uh, but just, you know, when you start talking to them and you ask them, like, you know, the first questions I will ask a client usually is, so there's your marketing, which is your face and your voice, right? It's the first thing that people see. But driving that face and that voice is your brain, mm-hmm. right? And that's like, it's kind of instructing the face and the voice what to do. Mm-hmm. I, you're hiring me because I want to figure out what's driving the brain. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that is a very succinct summary of the difference between marketing and branding. Mm. They're, they absolutely require each other. Mm. Marketing is the face and the voice. Mm. Mm. Your business model is the brain. Mm. Brand is the soul. In mm. other words, when I'm talking to another person, I you know, it, there's something wrong if there's no soul there. You will never see the soul. You'll never have the soul explained to you explicitly. Mm. But you're keenly aware that it's there and it's actually driving everything in mm. the background. And by the way... The face and the voice may change, mm. the message that the face and the voice may change, but hopefully the soul doesn't. Mm. Um, so when I have that sort of discussion with the client, like, what will your customers always emotionally need from you, have always emotionally needed from you, beyond what you're saying that you do better and differently with your face and your voice, mm. beyond what makes your business model so amazing so that you're not lying when you use your face and the voice, mm. why do you come to work every day? Mm. Interesting. What are you actually doing? Yeah. And the ones that I, I realize like I'm going to have this simpatico with, they instantly give me a shocking answer that I'm like, yeah, okay, you get it. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, you know, I'll have a lot of clients like they are they make computer chips. Their answer to me will be, we make the fastest, best, most power efficient computer chip. And I'm like, yeah, okay, we're going to have to learn each other's vocabulary. Yeah. But if I had a client like that who was the more simpatico type, their answer would be, well, yeah, we make computer chips, but really our goal is to we want people to be able to solve problems with no power in third world countries. So mm. like, oh, okay, so you really you really come to work every day to empower the powerless. Mm. That's something I can work with. Mm. That's something I can begin to objectively say, you know, there's certain colors that simply do not speak to that theme, period, mm. objectively. Mm. Um Right, and then so with those clients, like I've skipped over that whole introductory period, and we go right to the design. So that's, so that's cool. how that's how usually how I can tell. Yeah, it sounds like you're almost a, uh, a life coach or a business coach trying <laughs> to. <laughs> some of the clients that you know I've worked with, they rehire me. They're like, you're kind of like this therapist. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, you are designing a logo, but you come in and you like open up all these wounds without any hesitation, uh-huh. and then force us to deal with our pus. Yeah, interesting. And then we heal ourselves. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's so cool. Wow. Um, how, what, is the, what is the best way that you've found to quickly find somebody's soul? Or to... um, so, if it, so first you've got to 
get to the client and, and, and see, because they may know, and then you want to verify that. And so either way, it comes to your question. Like if they, if they tell you and you have to verify it or they have no clue and you have to figure it out. For me, it's just, okay, for me, it's just the presence. Of, first of all, it's just, again, Demian in his natural state is constantly analyzing patterns and trying mm -hmm. to find like, what is the theme? What's the through line here? Mm -hmm. uh, why are all the pigeons moving the way they are? Mm -hmm. Why are all the people in a room interacting with you? You know, I'm quietly sitting in the corner observing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is just sort of creepily observing. That's the first step. I'm just watching. Depending on the product, I mean, the, the number one thing I will do is observe an actual person using the product. Mm. I mean, really using it. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll try to understand what's painful about it. I'll try to most importantly understand where our promise is being broken. Mm. In other words, usually my first step to figuring out the soul is how does this piss people off? What, mm. what, what is wrong with this? Mm -hmm. What are these pain points for your customers? And that is usually, in other words, it's not by asking customers, what do you like about the product? Mm -hmm. It's really about getting them to like, what drives you crazy? Yeah. Now I call this technique positive opposites. Because uh -huh. a lot of people say, it's like, what if you're branding a company where like everybody hates it? Like, uh -huh. how do you get feedback that you can objectively create? Right? I'm like, no, 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 the negative feedback's awesome. Because if someone comes back and says, this is frustrating and slow, what can I infer that they emotionally need from this product? Uh -huh. They need something that is smooth and fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then again, I can like design-wise, you know, like objectively, there are certain shapes that are smoother and faster than others. Mm -hmm. That might have to inform our design choices. So that's mm -hmm. the first step. The second step is speaking to people who, it's not just the customers. This brand is also for the team of the, the it's all constituents, it's customers, it's business partners, it's vendors they work with. Mm -hmm. If I have enough time and they're paying me enough, I will then spend the time. I, I want to sit and watch, do my creepy observ observation of their workforce. Mm -hmm. And I would all, I would actually argue that I've learned more from not from executives, especially not from middle management. Mm -hmm. I've learned the most from like receptionists, mm -hmm. janitors mm -hmm. who are not on service contracts, mm -hmm. although even though, because you learn the most interesting things from the people who you would think like, oh yeah, they're just, you know, they're not, they don't even work here. They're hired on a service contract. Yeah. I had a client many years ago um, that I learned one of the most important things about their brand from a janitor who I was like, and I, you know, always just like, so what do you not like about your job? I always start with the negative. Right? So what yeah. do you not like about this? Because people kind of, and by the way, people are like, oh, I love everything. They're lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep yeah. probing. You will find something. Um, and his immediate answer is like, oh, I don't like Wednesdays. <laughs> right? And I was like, that's an odd answer. I made a yeah. little note of them. I'm like, like why don't you like Wednesdays? Yeah. And he told me something that none of the executives, they were all scared that I would report this and it would end up in the report. So none of them wanted me to say this. He said, well, on Wednesdays, like all the trash bins in the entire customer call center are like overflowing. It takes me twice as long to empty them. Mm. And I, I figured like there has got to be a reason for this because this is, this is a we this is very strange. Why? So I, I asked the manager of the call center, like, I, you know, I was speaking to, I'm trying to keep it in, I was, I was speaking to one of your employees and, Notice that, like, on Wednesdays, overflowing wastebaskets. Why? Mm. And he said, well, Wednesdays are the days where we, like, if there's open cases that are not resolved, mm. the files get thrown out. Mm. Mm. And that, like, told me something about, like, okay, you... We've been hearing from a lot of customers who are telling us your product is absolutely awful. And I'm thinking, is this just a bad sample size? Right. But now I actually have back-end proof. That they just... Kind of yes, and no one would have told me that if I had not spoken to the janitor, right? Mm. 
And then on the other times, you'll get these incredible, incredible, these are very rare. Um, back in, uh, I guess it was 2000, I don't know about them anymore, but uh, Akamai, I was, uh, work, I was working for a company that, that Akamai hired and did branding for them. And this is one of the few at the time, they were the least dysfunctional company I had ever seen. Because uh, I went to one of their receptionists and asked, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask people is, okay, so what's your job description? And, they'll, uh, and then I'll say, yeah, but what do you really do? Mm-hmm. Right? And most of the time, the answer will be the job description. Yeah. But in some places, and Akamai was one of them, like, she was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm here to like manage all the meetings and make sure that everybody's on time. And, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but what do you really do? And her answer was immediate and unquestioning. She was like, I'm really here to make sure that people have the support they need so we can get data across the network for our customers right. 100% reliability. I'm like, this is a... The secret, this receptionist yeah. understands why she's actually coming to work every day. Wow. Um, you know, so it was like really easy to do that branding for them because everybody knew it. And then when we talked to the customers mm-hmm. of Akamai, mm-hmm. they were just effusive. Mm-hmm. In fact, even the customers that left them, mm-hmm. 90% of them went back uh-huh. because they had such horrible experiences with competitors. And so it told me that Akamai is not lying to me uh-huh. when they tell me this is what people need and this is why they come to work every day. Do their customers mm-hmm. say it? Mm-hmm. So and the receptionist says Yes. <laughs> and so that's usually how I do it. It's like start with like probing, find out what's negative, see if people really know what they're doing, and see if it lines up with expectations. Uh-huh. And so uh, uh, you mentioned that if a receptionist or janitor kind of have these core identity uh, things, if they know it really by heart, what is the factor in them knowing that by heart? Is it an executive who's really good at communicating right. or is it that it's that core brand? Uh, I think, again, that depends on the company. In some cases, and you, by the way, you can tell there will be some cases where they have, like, you know, when I was a teenager, I worked at Walt Disney World and they put us through Disney University. They absolutely fucking brainwashed us and it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Conditioning, essentially. <laughs> Conditioning in the way where you brought up the, the point of the maids, right? Yeah. So, like, I, at the time, when I first was hired, I was too young to do anything else. I had to, uh, first, I was I cleaned bathrooms and cast members, and, mm-hmm. and then, eventually, I moved up to selling ice cream from a cart. <laughs> uh, this is before Winnie the Pooh, even. Um, but it was hard job. It was, like, dry ice, and, you know, this is before workplace, well, it's Florida, so you can do whatever you want. But, like, you know, getting, like, bleeding hands from the dry ice and standing on your feet for, you know, 10 hours, and it's 100 degrees and humid, and you're wearing polyester, and kids are kicking you. But you are not an ice cream salesman person. You are not a janitor. You are a cast member who's playing the role of a janitor in The Greatest Show on Earth, and you're on stage. Mm. and they spend three days drilling and you believe it Mm. now in those cases like you know obviously you went to Disney World and everyone's like oh happy happy Mm. it's all designed this way Mm. Um, you get that it's like yeah okay this is part of the show it's it's kind of bullshit funnily enough though when they're true to it it is their Mm. brand and that's probably where they've gone astray Um, but back to the point it's the same thing. Like sometimes it is a clever executive. It's like we train our people. They come in, they know exactly what they're doing. I'm not saying that's like at Akamai. I sure I think they had orientation, but no, I think they they just got it because they felt like they were a valuable member of the team. Mm-hmm. Even though she was a receptionist, mm-hmm. she was in the loop. They had ownership of the company. They took pride in that. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like the it wasn't employee owned. But it was a sort of the same mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the best. The second best is like. You know, you know, I don't necessarily believe it, but when I'm here, this is what they're paying me to do, and this is what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, that's mm-hmm. that's still an acceptable answer. That's part of the organizational. Mm-hmm. Uh, the really fake ones, though, are where it's like there's they use terror to back it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
And you can tell because they'll they'll answer you, but it's like they're yeah they're really nervous. It's like yeah yeah okay you could be set off to the gulag if you don't answer me correctly. One of my mentors once said that basically you know everybody when you work in an office environment everybody's just playing out their family issues basically all the time. Yes, and that's what I meant. It's like inherently dysfunctional. But a corporation by definition is not spending most of its time on making products. It is dealing with this interpersonal Mm -hmm. like interplay of humanity. Absolutely, it's the same thing. You know, a lot of cops are like, "I was the bully in high school, and now I'm being paid yeah, to do it." Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're, yeah, in corporations, yeah. you are just seeing that. Dynamic. Look, and it's not their fault. All humans, mm-hmm. we are, we are not only pattern recognition machines, mm-hmm. we are pattern repeating machines. Mm-hmm. We learn patterns that do or do not work for us, and then we repeat, mm-hmm. regardless it, of whether they work for that current situation. Oh, absolutely, yeah. because unless, and here's why I think meditation works for people. Huh. The whole point of being able to objectively see things in front of you is to objectively say, that's a pattern. (laughs) And no one forces me to repeat that pattern. Mm. right? I think that's why most people, oh, I have clarity now that I meditated. I'm breaking out of that cycle. That's all that is. Mm. But I'm not saying that it's unhealthy. Patterns, I mean, look, this is an evolutionary prerogative. If we weren't biologically inclined to be pattern recognition and pattern repeating machines, we wouldn't have a species. Mm. Um, you know, but you could argue that, well, now we're blessed enough in evolution to maybe be at a conscious level where we can stand back and say, I recognize that this is a pattern and maybe this one does serve a purpose. Maybe I modify it a bit or maybe I discard it. Mm. Mm. And that's really interesting because now we seem to be entering into a new step of evolution where mm. the technology is mm. changing mm. the parameters. So it's like... It's becoming very, if you don't have this sense of like self-awareness or anything like that, you can just get swallowed up by this dopamine and and all these different things. This is so, I'm so glad you brought that up and people are terrified about it and they're Mm -hmm. stressing over it. And um, I'm not, um, a part of it is like I completely left uh, Facebook. Uh, 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 I still have my, like, I don't have a website. I have like, I put my, I have a branding album on Facebook that's Uh actually somehow serve me well I may have to change but uh, and I send my clients there because I'm like look I, it's my feed and I have a new brand it's that's the quickest place to go see it mm-hmm. um, aside from that it's basically I've erased my history there mm-hmm. I actually like uh, like got a, a script that uh-huh. will go back and like you know Facebook doesn't want you to do it so they make it really hard yeah. uh, then Facebook called me and you know they, I was they're like we noticed that you haven't like we'd like to know why and Whoa. I was like, well, fuck you. You made an enemy. <laughs> yeah. I'm never coming back yeah. here. You don't lost a customer. You made an enemy. Yeah. You have subverted our, our republic. Yeah. I mean, there's no coming back from that goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> now, that being said, uh, uh, sorry, that was my little crazy rant. Um, um, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> part of, so that's my, you know, maybe I'm a coward. My, my way of not being stressed by it is just like, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compartmentalize that for my branding only. And I'm content with my... Like, I always like Facebook because I was sharing visuals. So mm-hmm. that's what Instagram is for. Mm-hmm. And Zuckerberg still gets my, yeah. you know, my data <laughs> that way. So yeah, fine, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, I'm not worried about that, though, for a few reasons. Um, so first, it's like the parable of when my grandparents were growing up and they had homework to do. Oh. Their parents would yell at them because it's like, you can't have your baseball cards out and do your homework at the same time. It's too much distraction, right? Then my mm-hmm. parents are like, you can't listen to the radio and do your homework. And then I'm like, you can't watch the TV. And my sister's like, you can't play Nintendo. And now... Mm. Yeah. Now, there's a part of it. It's just, I think, hard for the majority of people who are over 18 to imagine this. Yeah. 
because they didn't evolve, their brains didn't evolve that way. But there's that aspect of it. We are, we are essentially entering a new phase of human communications evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it is, like, it, some of it is really weird where we're going back to text, to, mm-hmm. to more code messaging instead of, or write, letter instead writing of instead of talking, talking on the phone, yeah, right? Yeah. Weird things like that. But it's also the multitasking and the snippet quality. That, you know, yeah. the, uh, the novelty. Uh, yeah, now, there are downsides to that, but I think a lot of those downsides now are simply because the majority of the population is backwards adapting to this. Mm-hmm. And they're using old patterns mm-hmm. to try and figure out how to use this. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you have this whole new generation that was raised with it. Mm-hmm. and They are adept at it, yeah. Not only that, but it's like their patterns are completely alien. It's so alien that it's almost like, I can't even begin to, like, I share no similar... Yeah. Basis in which you even make a judgment yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, the danger is this. It's funny because these three movies, so it's like I, I mentioned this, I wrote a, like a, a paper in college uh, in 1992, and I'm like, holy crap, I still think that's true. Yeah. I call it, it's like the it's the theme of three of Kubrick's movies. I call it, it's this, it's this Victorian trilogy, yeah. which was a, 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 a Dr. Strangelove 2001 and A Clockwork Orange. Now, why? Mm-hmm. I would say the meta theme of each of those speaks to exactly what we're doing. So if you want to understand why you should and should not worry about this as you watch those three movies mm-hmm. in that order, mm-hmm. because they're all on different levels commenting on we are essentially evolved monkeys mm-hmm. that instead of throwing shit at each other, mm-hmm. now push buttons to do things, mm-hmm. right? And it's no longer shit that we're throwing at each other. And what Kubrick sort of does is says what happens when monkeys like that with Victorian morals still, mm-hmm. we're still kind of like operating from this Victorian mindset of... Proper. Yes, like, well, what, what's, forget what's real and what is physically mm-hmm. evident. What is tradition? What is, pro- right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the consequences? What, what consequences does technology do when you know hairless apes pushing buttons with a victorian mindset suddenly have this promethean power of that technology there can be horrific consequences societal in the case of clockwork orange psychological in the case of orange uh in artificial intelligence in 2001 or the end of the world and dr strangelove um these are all consequences of that theme and it was sort of an interesting prescient warning uh you know from that generation i think to us Mm. Uh, so i deal with that by compartmentalizing it, understanding that I am going to be 50 in, in, in like four years and I'm literally approaching this from a point of view that is not relevant to most of the people that are coming up and I'm not going to enforce my irrelevant point of view on them. I'm not going to be the, you know, Grandpa Simpson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I liked it when... Mm-hmm. No, I, I have no right to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have a right to sort of control how it affects me. Yeah. I'm not going to be a victim. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, no, you may not have this data. No, I don't want to be a part of that so that mm-hmm. you can have this. I don't care. Mm-hmm. For me, it's very interesting because I was one of the first generations. Because my dad was in technology, I was six years old when I got my first computer. Mm-hmm. So I'm the first generation that has experienced this pull towards this internet. But at the same time, I'm old enough now to be on that barrier. So I can still be, right. I can exactly understand what you're talking about. And part of me wants that, yearns for it. But at the same time, I'm like part of this other generation, which is totally hooked and in, in online and my brain is the, 
you know, in meditation, we talk a lot about what are the boundaries that separate me from other things. And if you really analyze that question, very few of those boundaries exist. You've got the skin and everything like that. But where does the information in my brain come from? It's all from this computers. And I'm so, I'm so like, but those boundaries are pure illusions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're used again. Here we go with the pattern thing. It's like those are useful illusions because we've learned in the yeah. past by holding those illusions, we can hold on to permanence, which doesn't. The only permanence is that there isn't permanence, yeah. or that we can. Latch on to something, or we can make an excuse that I have no choice when, in fact, you are allowing someone to control, mm. you know, your outcome, mm. and that is the only way around it. Mm. Yeah, and you have to be able to see that for what it is. Mm. Uh, but we, you know, look. The, the next step of this is even the kids. You know, that they they're going to have to deal with the fact, like, look, we are coming to the point where we're going to plug our brain in. It's mm. just, I mean, there's no way around that. It's just a question of when and how. Mm. And choosing if you want to do that or not. I mean, for will it be? I mean, will it yeah. be a choice? <laughs> That's what's interesting. Like, is yeah. my cell phone a choice anymore? I yeah. call it a cell phone. Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, but again, people are like, "Is that good?" I'm like, "I don't know." How's it any different than us? Like, there's this transhumanism element yeah. of it, mm -hmm. and ultimately, they come down to the side. It's like, well, look, clothing is transhumanist. Fire is transhumanist. The toothbrush is transhumanist. <laughs> Soap is transhumanist. Tools. These okay. four things uh -huh. have saved like. Uh -huh. it, it prolonged our lives longer than any other soap, toothbrushes, clothing, oh. and fire. Yeah. Right? We have augmented our bodies. That's and our, part of the human being. Yeah, eyeglasses. Yeah. Right. If yeah. you don't like transhumanism, yeah. you don't like, if you're like, no, we should ban that. No, we yeah. shouldn't have that like genetic thing. I'm like, yeah, okay, then get rid of your clothing. Um, yeah. Because we don't have fur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, what... I find amazing about that though is like so we're seeing the beginnings of this, but so when we're literally plugged in, I think the thing that people aren't considering again because we have no frame of reference except for maybe good science fiction yeah. is like where mm -hmm. does the self end mm -hmm. and the collective begin? Mm -hmm. People say like oh sheep you're being sheep I'm like yeah that may actually end up we may turn into a flock of uh, hairless ape sheep mm -hmm. um, you know because like yeah. you will have a thought and it will be sh like but then what's the flip side of that? You will literally, literally uh -huh. be able to walk in someone else's shoes for yeah. the first time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for compassion and mm -hmm. empathy? Mm -hmm. That's the flip side of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. that's beautiful. So we got about five minutes left. Yes, and I was wondering, do you have, because I really love this idea of finding the core emotional identity, but also at the individual level, do you have any advice for somebody how they can kind of, what the questions they need to ask themselves or what they kind of things that can help them figure out their own core emotional identity. Hmm, that's, okay, so that's uh, tricky because A, it's personal. Uh, uh. I don't think you can. Uh. It's like a doctor operating on themselves or a lawyer representing themselves. You, you can, but I'm not sure you can be truly, truly objective about it. So you might need someone else to... You might need yeah. someone else. <laughs> um, now, the flip side of that, by the way, is this is another wonderful thing. I think that uh. like what we do plug our brains in, mm -hmm. you you will automatically have someone else in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Right? So it's like, I, that could be a self-solving problem. Now, that being said, does that mean you shouldn't strive to that? Absolutely not. You should strive to understand it. Just understand that maybe in that case, the true objective answers may not come from within. My answer to that would be, allow those answers to be informed from within, mm -hmm. but basically, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. observe. Yeah. Now, look, the the... the, the the danger line here that you're passing is, of course, if you observe too much and internalize it too much, you are allowing other people to sort of dictate your behavior to your detriment. Yeah. And that's why I'm like, this is a very, I can't, like, in a pithy way, so like, here's the path. Yeah. 
But that being said, um, I, I would say there are a couple things. The first is don't worry if you don't understand something that you feel like you should. Mm. The number one thing I've learned is it's such a cop-out and so true. My grandmother told me this and I was like, that's such an old person thing to say, but it's true, is just time. Yeah. Huh. You literally understand things in your, like, you know, in your 30s that you didn't in your 20s and nothing you could have done or said would have made you understand it. It was just you going through unpleasant and pleasant experiences, learning new patterns, discarding of old ones, and suddenly, out of nowhere, you understand something that you didn't before. Mm. And I promise you that happens, and it never stops. Mm. So, like, that's kind of the fun thing about getting older. Mm. So there's that. The other thing I would say, and I think this is extremely important now, both from a, uh, a socioeconomic, political, and cultural sense, mm. is do not get fucking trapped up mm. in the patterns of your parents. Mm. Mm. There's a lot of understandable bitterness now where you have this entire generation of parents basically saying to their you know, children, you're selfish and feckless and you don't care about anything and why can't you do this? Mm-hmm. And the rage amongst their children, which is completely justified of saying, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. You want us to do what you did? You took that away from us. You ruined it for us. You made it so that there can never be another generation that can do that again so that you could have a tax cut. Now, I understand you know, that both sides had their reasons for this. But what I'm basically saying to people, it's like, if you feel like the right answer is something that hasn't been done before or that's what lazy people would do or like, that's not a real commitment. I'm like, don't let that scare you. If, it, if, if it's something that causes less stress and maybe at first less money and you're like well that caused more stress i'm like well no then find a place where you don't need to make that much money that's actually in my opinion much more important because short term yeah you know you're not going to have a better credit score but long term you're going to be a lot less stressed a lot happier but i think most importantly uh, start to become a master at what you do to the point where people get joy of being a part of what you do. Clients will hire you because they're energized by your presence. Mm. None of that comes from, you know, the stress or the competition or the rat race. That comes from the absolute joy mm. uh, of the process of the creation. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That is beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I'm sorry for uh, <laughs> the text issue. It's like, thank you for having me. No problem.